This is the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast, episode 9. I'm Matt, and today I'm going to be reviewing and moaning about some geeky stuff. On today's show, I have every Marvel show that is upcoming and my thoughts on them. I have two comments to read before you die, so I've got X-Men Forever, Volume 1, and I have Smallville Season 11, Volume 1, Guardian, which I will be review. I will review Smallville Season 11, Volume 1, and give my reasons why it should be made into a TV series. And lastly, I have a movie you must watch before you die, Across the Spider-Verse. Marvel has a plethora of TV shows of all shapes and sizes, from live action to animation. The issue is that everything except for Loki seems to be getting pushed back for one reason or another. And to be fair, I feel like Loki was one of those ones that was never going to get pushed back because he's a fan favourite. The first season was great. It just, it was one of those ones that was never going to get pushed back. X-Men 97, on the other hand, you know, it's been pushed back. It, you know... For me, I kind of feel like this is one of the ones that you're going to get old school fans wanting it and you're going to get new people watching the old stuff and then getting into this. So X-Men 97 picks up where the cartoon from the 90s left off. If you're like me, you've got real fond memories of the series because it started in 1992 and it was brilliant. If you're like me, the theme tune still runs through your head to this day. It ended back in 1997 because Savan Studios were cutting costs and they had switched animation studios, which meant that the last season was much less of a success than the previous previous seasons. The animation took a nosedive, to be fair. That said, I am looking forward to watching the new season, although waiting slightly longer than I anticipated has wound me up a little. I suppose this gives me a little bit more time to acclimate my kids to the 90s show. So X-Men 97 is going to pick up where it left off from back in the ni- in 97 um, with Charles Xavier who is dying. He leaves the planet with Lilandra, Lilandra even, um, heading towards the Shi'ar homeworld. I'm looking forward to seeing the new animation where they take it, the story from this point because there's so much source material. Speaking of source material, we have Agatha Darkhold Diaries which is over a year away. So it was previously going to be called Agatha Coven of Chaos, um, or Agatha Harkness Coven of Chaos. I kind of feel like I don't really see the point in changing the title of it. It's made it a little bit more, you know, a bit more of a joke for me. And in all honesty, I couldn't really care less. One Division didn't exactly leave me wanting more Agatha or Scarlet Witch or Vision or any of the above. The only thing that I can see being worth it. It, with the series is allegedly it brings back a teenage version of Wonder and Vision Son Wiccan which could bring a young Avengers film or TV series into fruition I kind of feel it's, it is a filler series I said previously that the one good thing about the series is that Agatha Harkness doesn't have her own comic series which means she's a blank canvas which means we don't have to worry about fans kicking off over the fact that the series diverges from the source material I have to a certain extent changed my mind about that. I I think any series can be helped by at least a little bit little bit of source material. I feel like she need, probably needs more source material than her own to actually, you know, give us much. I don't exactly have high hopes for the series, but I will wait and see. Echo. So Echo is now set to be out in January twenty twenty four rather than November this year. And this is another one that I just don't care about. She was somewhat of a nothing character to me. She barely added anything to the Hawkeye series other than diversity over being death. And, you know, death, not death. Um, the idea is that 
the only thing I'm really looking forward to about the series is that you know the the other cast. Charlie Cox reprises his role as Matt Murdock, aka Daredevil, and Vincent D'Onofrio reprises his role as Wilson Fisk, aka the Kingpin of Crime. I think the MCU is it's it's somewhat clutching its straws a little bit on this one. It would beg the question: Why is Ironheart been taken off the schedule when something like this? Is been kept on it. So Ironheart, you know, albeit the character development in Wakanda Forever wasn't great, or maybe it was the actress who played her that didn't do it for me, but I kind of feel like she might have been a better bet than something like this. I kind of feel like someone with, you know, Iron Man armor to a certain extent, but I know they're doing armor wars, so who knows. Um, what if the series, on the other hand, brings a whole bag of exciting and new Marvel series to the table. The animation is cool and gives us a new take on the stories we already know. Um, what bugs me about some of these series being pushed back is is that the the Marvels is still on for its November release. The reason being that it has a tie-in um, at the end for the new Avengers movies, which would suggest the fact that Captain Marvel is going to play a role in the new Avengers movies. So, yay, can't wait. You know, Brie Larson, brilliant, or not. Anyway, one of today's comics to read before you die is X-Men Forever Volume 1. The series is written by legend Chris Claremont, who is responsible for some of the best X-Men stories since their creation. He wrote X-Men stories from 1975 to 1991. His version of the characters were the versions that were used in the X-Men the Animated Series and subsequently X-Men 97, which is coming out next year. Chris Claremont had a lot of stories he had left over which he felt he needed to be told. The comic series takes us takes part outside the normal Marvel continuity and takes us back to 1991. The first three issues are generally a reprint of the first three issues of uh, the 1991 X-Men. The last pages were devoted to the to be a bridge of the story meant to diverge into X-Men Forever. The biggest shock of those pages was hinted it hinted the death of Wolverine. The teams had previously been split into blue and gold teams, but now ran as one unit under the guidance of Professor X and a shield liaison Nick Fury. The team is tasked with apprehending the mutant Fabian Cortez, who was last seen escaping a disintegrating asteroid M. The last five issues solve a lot of plot holes left when Claremont resigned his post as X-Men writer. The series gives us a clear view of what the X-Men universe might have looked like in present day. So a lot of the stories would have been completely different now. So the idea that Storm, a long-serving X-Men and former Queen of Wakanda, as we know ever from present day, was in fact evil and subsequently killed Wolverine in this comic. So Chris Claremont had actually decided, you know what, Storm's evil. She's going to be working for this you know, organisation. She's going to take out Wolverine and who knows where it would have gone from there. Or we've got the fact that Sabretooth was in fact Wolverine's father. So Chris Claremont, he had he could do anything he wanted in the universe. In the within the X Men anyway. And he decided that you know, Sabretooth was gonna be in fact Wolverine's father, which if we think about it, it really makes sense. There's just no real need for him not to be, I suppose. We've also got Professor X. He um he was you know, at one point not crippled and he gets re-crippled by the Shadow King, but in this book, he was never supposed to be back in the wheelchair. We have Cyclops' son, Nathan, who we all know ends up becoming Cable. Um, he's not taken to the future or infected with the legacy virus, so 
I know that takes cable out of existence or off cable off the table as such. But I kind of feel like maybe that was probably for the best. We also have Kitty Pride accidentally inheriting one of Wolverine's crawls when she phases through his dead body. It begs the question, where would the X-Men be now if Chris Claremont's stories had made it to the main continuity from the beginning? It was beautifully written by a legend who is obviously passionate about X-Men and has a lot more stories to tell. I know that, you know, obviously Stan Lee, you know, created the X-Men, he got them going, but realistically, from 1975 to 1991, Chris Claremont was probably the stepdad living with the mum. I kind of feel like he was really in control, he, you know, he was, he was writing them into something brilliant, so I kind of feel like we've got to give him more, you know, a decent amount of props for this. The artwork with it was brilliant and lends to the story. The, uh, the story is full provoking and in my eyes could be made into a separate universe like the ultimate universe that could have a monthly book all in all this should be on one of the yeah one of your comics to read before you die so smallville season 11 in my eyes would have made a great tv series i kind of feel like it had all the bones to be absolutely fantastic the issue we had was though that you know smallville had gone 10 seasons it reached its natural conclusion and um, yeah, you can't keep hold of the characters, you know, the people, the actors for the life. It just won't happen. So, volume one, for those who of you were, for those of you who were fans of the Smallville television series, following the early years of Superman growing from farm boy to Monastero, then this comic is for you. I remember being pretty good when Smallville finished, but like I said, it came to its natural conclusion. So when I found out that they were bringing out season eleven in its comic form, I was ecstatic. Not only did it bring back the beloved characters that we had gotten to know over the last 10 years, but it also had the potential to do so much more than the series ever did, because it was not limited by CGI, money, time constraints, or the fact that, as a series, they might not have been able to use a certain character, because that particular character might have been getting used in a film or another series of some sort. So, the book was only limited by the writer's imagination, which, yeah, I kind of feel like, the beauty of it is you can literally put anything down on the page. So Smallville Season 11 Volume 1 Guardian is 12 chapters wrong and was written by Brian Q. Miller. So the interesting thing about Brian Q. Miller was that he started his writing career as an unpaid intern on Smallville, Smallville in Season 5. Um, the show was well and truly cemented in its spot by then. So he was unpaid for two seasons, and then in season seven, he was hired as a writing assistant. He completed the WB's writer's workshop and was promoted to staff writer by season eight. Then he was promoted again before the end of Smallville's television run to executive story editor. So I, I loved that kind of story where his perseverance was rewarded. And thanks to all this, you know, and his time on Smallville, thanks to all that and his time on Smallville, he was made he made acquaintances like Jeff Johns who introduced him to the editors at DC Comics, landing him a three-book arc for Teen Titans in 2009. So Miller went on to write for television series like Arrow, Flash, Sleepy Hollow, and is still working, you know, he's still working in film and TV now, and he writes for He-Man and the Masters of Universe on Netflix. The, the pencils were done by Perry Perez, who started his work in Dynamite Entertainment, working on titles like Savage Tales, and... Um, He's worked on the likes of Adventure Comics, Action Comics, Superman, Batgirl, 
the return of Bruce Wayne, all of them from DC. From Marvel, he's done Carnage, Spider-Gwen, Venom, Hellcat. He's done Star Wars stories, Sano Starro. And then he's done Edge of the Spider-Verse and many more. So season 11 takes place six months after the events that we saw in the season 10 finale where we saw Clark finally get into the blue and red suit and he um, takes to the skies and he saves the planet from Apocalypse and Darkseid. So we find out early on um, that the events that occurred in the series finale designated, they designate them contact, meaning that the world has had its first contact with aliens. It kind of has a feel like the blip from Marvel to, you know, for me anyway. So, in you know, six months on, at the end of season ten, we find out Lex is alive again. He's been you know, put back together with parts of his clones, and he's alive. So Lex is alive, and thanks to Tess Mercer, um, who we saw die at the end of season ten, she uses a neurotoxin on him, and it takes away his memories. So he has no idea who Clark is at this point because he knew he was he knew he was Superman at that point. So um, the world knows of the existence of aliens, and they know of their quiet savior known as Superman. So Superman zips around Metropolis in the first issue. Um, he's spotted by Lex Luthor, who has opened up Lex Corp, getting rid of Luthor Corp altogether. Superman finishes the first chapter by heading into space, saving Russian cosmonaut whose space station is damaged by strange energy ribbon. So when I say space station, I mean it's a space weapon, and that's what they're using it for. So Superman seals the breach and repressurizes the cabin. The energy ribbon becomes one of the secondary stories for the first volume. So I think this is one of the bits that... uh, I could see happening in the show and not happening at the same time, because I think... The, the difference between this version of Clark Kent and the Smallville version of Clark Kent, the original Smallville, is he was well and truly airbound back in the day. Now he's basically god level because he can fly. You know, he's stronger. He wears the cape. He has the dual identity kind of thing. So I think that's the bit that. It takes maybe a couple of minutes to get used to. Although you can, what I love about it is that you can hear the voices that go along with the characters. I mean, that's one thing that you kind of miss when you're just picking up a brand new comic. Sometimes you make your own voices for the characters. What I love about this kind of book is, though, that you bring in your own nostalgia to it. So um, the second chapter kicks off with Clark and Lois talking about the energy ribbon. It then goes on to General Sam Lane. So we've met him before. He meets up with Lex to discuss the lack of military involvement during contact. Lex wants the military contracts to put weapons in space like the Russians. He also wants to know that what Sam is doing about Superman. So Sam says he'll deal with Superman when the need arises. Which would beg the question, how would he deal with Superman? No one's really got any data on him other than maybe the odd meteor freak in um, Belroof um, who can tell him exactly you know, who Clark is. I feel like that's one thing that maybe you know, the series kind of forgot over the years that pretty much everyone Clark fought you know, knew who he was. They knew he was superhuman. They, they knew he was, you know, he was the one who put them there. I kind of feel like there's a, season three was like literally the only season that basically, you know, goes into that and that's when Lex is stuck in Belle Reve and he's um, you know, 
he's he's not doing great and Clark's put like loads of the people in there and I kind of feel like what happened to all those people? Did they just forget and just you know, get out eventually and just like leave him big? No, not a chance. So I kind of feel like maybe that's one of the questions that they could have come out with in this, but who knows. Um, later that day, Clark bumps into Lex. Lex calls him by his name um, and said that you know he's been told that they used to be friends. Clark questions Lex's memories, which Lex confirms are gone. So if I were Clark, I'd be a bit sceptical as well. So remember, he's known him for 10 years. Um, he knows how much of a lying git he can be. So an alarm sounds and you know, Clark, in his usual manner, um, disappears, leaving Lex, Lex perplexed. Realistically, how many times during the series did Clark just disappear without a trace whenever someone was in trouble? I know, I thought Lex was supposed to be a relatively smart bloke, but is he really that thick that he never cottoned on? Realistically, I think if Brainiac hadn't told him in season seven that Clark was the traveller and he was he was an alien, he was superhuman, I reckon Lex would have been that that stupid that he'd just have carried on like that. So after this, um Tess turns up um and Lex has assumed she's dead. We all know she's dead, but she's turned up behind him and she's given him some shit. Um, this leads us to the question. It leads us to question Lex's mental stability. So, bear in mind at this point we know that men- mentally the man was put back together uh, by parts of his clones by his dad from another universe. Yeah. So, I kind of feel like realistically there is a possibility that he has lost the plot. Um, chapter three starts with Clark and Oliver taking down some crooks. That's where he zipped off to. And Chloe and Lois are at Watchtower trying to figure out the energy ribbon that damaged the Russian space station. Chloe hacks the space station's um, video feed, and to their surprise, they see a spaceship colliding with the space station. Chapter four starts with Lex having an MRI scan to determine why he's having hallucinations of tests and making sure that he isn't a loon. Yeah, realistically, you know. That's what you would do, I suppose. So, Superman goes to space and uses advanced tech to scan for any signs of the rift that caused the energy ribbon. I think these are the bits that I find hard to believe because obviously we're used to Earthbound Clark just using, you know, Queen satellites or Watchtower satellites to do all this stuff. I kind of feel like this is all a bit unnecessary. So, later on, Clark zips in just in time to see Lex's press conference where Lex chastises Superman and the Justice League. He then introduces a true American hero, astronaut Hank Henshaw. So, this is one of the things that I like about the series. So, if you're familiar with Superman, you know that Hank Henshaw is Cyborg Superman and he's been around since what 1993 when Superman was killed by Doomsday in the comics which would suggest that we're going to have another Cyborg situation in Smallville so we've already had a Cyborg situation in season 5 and he ends up being part of the league so chapter 5 has a reunion between Oliver and Lex so if you've watched the series you know that they went to school together they hate each other and Lex even hates him now and you know he hasn't even got his memories of him. Let's be honest, they were both dicks in high school. So Clark's in, in, Clark interviews Hank Henshaw and finds him to be trustworthy, using that farm boy intuition to you know, weed out the good people from the bad people. Emil tells Chloe later on that the scanner that Clark used in space has um, picked up the trail of the spaceship and it landed, guess where, Kansas. Of course it did. Every spaceship in the... You know, you know, the history of that world has landed in Kansas for some particular reason. So how many spaceships have actually landed in Kansas? 
it must be a fuckload by now. So the rocket takes off and starts having problems as it's leaving the orbit. Um, it explodes, so bye-bye Hank, or not. So chapter 6 sees Superman zipping away. So Clark zipped away again, leaving Lois to you know, say, oh, Clark's just gone to the toilet or whatever. So he flies up to the rescue while Clary from Watchtower directs him in. Supes puts out the fires and separates the last fuel tank before it explodes. Hank asks him to save the crew first, which Supes does, but he doesn't get back in time to save Hank properly. So Hank wakes up on a stretcher with burns and radiation exposure. So he's completely messed up. Superman directs um, the paramedics to Emil at Star Labs because he wants Emil to take care of him. So Emil is now working at Star Labs. He's you know one of the big honchos over there. Chapter 7 starts with Chloe and Oliver um, searching for the crash site. They find the ship, which has a Queen Industries logo on it, and footprints leading away. Lois visits Hank at Star Labs, and Emil tells her that Hank is very much aware, but thanks to the radiation poisoning, is trapped in his own body, so not good for him. I think we can see where this is going with Hank Henshaw, if I'm honest. Um, Lois speaks to his wife, uh, who is furious with Superman for not getting to him in time, although Supes was only following Hank's wishes. Supes blames Lex for the explosion and crosses a line, breaking the window on Lex's office at LexCorp. How many times have we seen Clark go off on one on Lex and almost cross a line? I kind of feel like this is literally what he's just done here. What I like about this scene is it shows just how powerful Supes really is. You know, we only have to think back to you know, some cartoons from when we were younger and the super strong one always does a super clap at some point and breaks windows and stuff like that. This is basically what he does and then he zooms in, he attacks Lex and tries to get him to confess. Um, then three military troopers show up and ask Supes to stand down. It's not really surprising. He's attacked the building so it's almost a, you know, it's an act of terrorism in their eyes. So the fact that especially Supes was present during the race, Russian space station explosion, the rocket explosion, and now he's attacked Lexcorp, it's given Sam Lane the go-ahead to take him down. So good luck, Sam, which I very much doubt. So Chapter 8 starts with Lois trying to get in touch with her father, trying to ask him to stop shooting at Superman and leave him alone. So the pair argue, and then the military opens fire on Supes. Yeah, let's be honest, Superman's he's bulletproof in their eyes. The bullets ricochet off him and one of them hits the helicopter and sends it flying down towards Lois, of course it does. So, Soup saves Lois, of course he does. How many times has that woman defied death? I kind of feel like, realistically, out of all the Lois lanes, she should probably be the one that is dead. Yeah, how many? they, they all have a tendency to do this, but I kind of feel like, you know, it gets... It, the series got really unrealistic when you think, actually, you know, she should be well dead. She wasn't even trying to not die in half of it. So, Soup saves Lois, and because he saved Lois, Sam stands down. The the panels then pan to Lex, who he's seeing Tess again. Uh, Lex now knows, because of the MRI, that there was a mental bond made uh, between the two of them when Tess used the neurotoxin on him. And... Uh, He's got all their memories, and they're right. She's in his head, basically. So Lex barges into Star Labs later on, where he offers Hank Henshaw the you know, life-saving treatment to you know fix him up. Realistically, we know what's going to happen. We're going to have a cyborg Superman on our hands, and you know it's not going to be great. So Chapter Nine starts with Oliver and Chloe tracking the footprints from the crashed spaceship, 
And one thing I did love about the series is, is that, you know, it didn't follow Oliver's usual archetype where he ended up with Black Canary. It it diverged from that, and it's probably one of the only times that no one's really cared. I kind of feel like because Chloe was quite a beloved character, they just everyone got on board with it because we know that she ended up with Jimmy in previous series, but then Jimmy died and not great but her and Oliver seem to work a little bit more for me and I kind of feel like you know she'll probably be the only if there is an animated series or anything that comes back any kind of reunion she's not going to be there because you know of all the cult stuff I kind of feel like she's done herself in there and that's all we'll say about that so then Lex has another heated heart to heart with Tess who Lex has now figured out a way to get rid of her, which is not good for Tess. So Hank now has a cyborg body and is not happy with Lex, lifting him into the air and threatening him and he's going to kill him. Emil signals soups. I, I don't know why you do that. I kind of feel like if you let Lex die, even better. Do you know what I mean? We all know Emil's not too bothered about crossing some lines here and there. Uh, chapter 10 starts with soups putting out the helicopter fires from the previous chapters. Um, um, him and General Lane have a conversation about his temper tantrum and that he has the yeah, president worried about his actions. Superman receives the signal from Emil and zips off you know, in true Superman fashion, um, leaving General Lane just on his tod. Um He gets there just in time and he scuffles with Hank who starts to blame Superman for his condition. Hank eventually comes to his senses um, you know, and stands down. Meanwhile, Chloe and Oliver find the crash survivor. This is the one that I kind of feel like could have been a really good story. So it's Chloe's counterpart from Earth 2. Um, before she can really tell them anything that's gone on, she's shot and killed by an unknown figure, leaving her last words to Chloe and Oliver that Earth 2 has been destroyed. So the final chapter of the volume, open uh, volume 1, shows us the main plot of the the first volume was all about i feel like this is the part of it would that would have been a brilliant you know brilliant in the series because hank henshaw was lex's collateral damage he had no problem sacrificing him so lex admits to superman that he caused the explosion on the rocket so that soups would intervene and get covered in a radioactive substance which has now tagged him he, it means he can't go home without outing the secret identity. The radiation should die off in 500 years. Good news for him, I suppose, because he might be the only one who survives 500 years, I suppose. So, Super Vows Revenge. I love this type of book. You know, this type of book for me, it brings so much nostalgia when you read it. I love being able to hear the voices of the characters from the show through the pages. You know, I think that it might be a little bit late on now to make a live action series showcasing, you know, showcasing what we can see on these pages. But to do an animated Smallville season 11 or you know, like that Smallville Superman year one would be pretty cool. I love the way that I could see the characters performing the scenes while hearing the specific voices of the characters through the words. I think, you know, one thing that, you know, I like a lot of at the moment is nostalgia stuff so you know i like the idea of you know stuff like coming back like x-men 97 is coming back that's all nostalgia you know reading something like this and you you know you're blasted back to when the series finished or even when the series began i like the voices i like you know thinking about all that stuff so one thing that i would probably like to see if we can't have any of that stuff 
is, you know, any of Smallville season 11 is maybe a continuation of what we saw in the Arrowverse continuity, where various members of the Arrowverse um, head into the Smallville continuity and they meet Clark, who's given up his powers to raise his family. So I'd love to know how and why he got to this point. All in all, I feel like if it can't be made into a live action series, Smallville season 11 should well be an animated series and I think it would be well received. Movies you should watch ASAP. So the movie I'm going to talk about today, and I've I've left it long enough, I suppose, is Across the Spider-Verse. So if you haven't seen it, what have you been waiting for? It is literally on its way out now. You know, you can you can rent it at any point. It is the best movie of the year, if not the best Spider-Man movie of all time. The only problem I can see is with the movie is that allegedly we're not getting it until March next year. What I'd probably say is that we're probably gonna it's probably gonna wait much longer than that anyway. So it's got epic visuals, crazy alternate universes. Gwen's universe in particular is one of my favourites because it's almost like all the colours bleeding into each other and you know the the rooms are led by emotion. So the happier she gets, the lighter the room gets, the more depressed and and you know, you know darkness she feels the darker the rooms so do i wish i'd seen a few different spider-man from throughout the years there absolutely but you know i'm pretty sure that we're gonna get that in the second film there was hundreds of spider-man and probably we're gonna get a lot more of them actually taking some sort of a center stage in it and uh, what i love about the film is that it's it it's just not afraid to just you know yeah, it talk about the canon events and the fact that you know things happen for a reason. And you know, if you think about every Spider-Man archetype, that they basically, you know, Uncle Ben dies, Captain Stacy dies, all this stuff, and they're saying that basically without that Spider-Man wouldn't be Spider-Man. But this one's basically saying, well, what if I want to change something? What if I don't want that to be my future? And it's about maybe changing destinies here rather than actually just, you know, going with the flow. So, you know, what I love is, another thing that I love is the fact that it's it's not just a brilliant film, but it's pushing the idea of animation at the moment. So, you know, each, each universe has a different way of animating itself. So each person in it is animated slightly different. You know, some universes might be pretty similar, but then... There are like two versions of Miles in it and if you look at the actual textures on their skin and stuff like that, it's completely different because they're from different universes and that's what I like about it. You've also got to give props for Lego Spidey and it's, it's probably one of my favourite things in the whole movie. The fact that, you know, you've got this Lego Spidey there and he uh, he's part of this League of Spider-Men or whatever it's called and I thought it was brilliant. We've also got the spot. The spot, you know, on paper, not the best villain. All right, uh, but the way they utilized his powers and created a backstory which fitted in with the Spider Verse, it it's amping up the hype for the next movie and it's promising to be a pretty big showdown. Another, yeah, person I'd probably class as a villain is Miguel O'Hara. So he's Spider Man twenty ninety nine, and he'll stop at nothing. They stop at nothing to stop Miles from you know doing you know messing with the canon events. All right, uh, 
because Miguel's already done this and he lost the universe because he, apparently he messed with a canon event, he thinks that Miles can't do it. So, yeah, one thing I'd say is Miguel technically isn't the villain, but he is at the same time because he's really he's trying to he's he's pitting everyone against Miles and Miles is literally a Spider-Man on his own against a hundred Spider-Man. So, uh, one person, one Spider-Man that I wish probably wish should. I wish should have been there is the 90s cartoon Spider-Man so for me he was sorely missed but Marvel do have another chance to get it right Jake Johnson who plays Spider-Man from the first film and Peter Parker from the first film anyway and Peter Parker in the second film has promised that Beyond the Spider-Verse will be brilliant so if it's garbage we have someone to blame I'm Matt and this has been the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast thanks for listening